favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why it's overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Rachel. And I'm Nicole. And today we are talking about something that might be a little bit sad, but it it's interesting. Yeah, and no. I just need you to kind of hang in there and oh, no. just <laughs> just come along for the ride. Um, we're going to talk about... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we're going to talk about extinct animals of Africa. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> Nicole! <laughs> I was just, just before we were recording telling you about how depressed I got earlier reading about the Serengeti's history. <laughs> I know, it was so hard not to say anything. <laughs> oh, I'm already crying. This is gonna oh, be bad. No. Okay, let's go. I'm ready. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> we'll start in the way back, and then we'll slowly work our way up to the present day, and talk about some conservation, and like, some good stuff, too. So... Just, it's going to be a good one, I think. I believe you. I hope. (laughs) I hope it's not too depressing. (laughs) But yeah. Well, take it away, Nicole. (laughs) Thanks. Did you want to do news? Oh, right. That. Oh, you threw me off guard so much. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, We just wanted to point out that we do have a newsletter you can sign up for at our website, grasslandgroupies.org. We try to put stuff out every week, including news events and more. So not just like promotional stuff for the things like podcast episodes we're putting out, but, you know, actual news about stuff happening in grasslands and new research being published and all those fun things that we can find about uh, grassland conservation and science. And we have another episode review. So thank you so much for the five stars on Parrots of the Plains. You guys are making us so happy and uh, we just love you. So thanks for that. It made our day. (laughs) It's true. Like literally every time we get like a new subscriber or a new review, we like text each other and we're like, hee 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 hee. It's great. Thank <laughs> you. Literally like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Are you ready oh, to I'm, dive I'm, into this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just relax. Deep breaths. Uba. Uba. Like the uh, machine <laughs> in sorry. Star Wars, you know, that coaches Padme on giving birth. Anyway, let's talk about extinct African animals. <laughs> okay, okay. So I kind of I'm focusing mostly on the megafauna of Africa, and a lot of the megafauna of Africa is is gone. They're all, they're extinct, but we do also have a lot that are still living, which is a really interesting and unique unique thing about Africa. So I just kind of wanted to go way back in the past, but also like I said on into kind of some more recent extinctions as well as you know things that we can do for the future so awesome just so everyone's on the same page you know what is a megafauna it literally is just a big animal mega big fauna animal it's a big animal that's it um sometimes paleontologists can be kind of nitty-gritty with the you know what exactly a megafauna is but ultimately it's a big animal and in pretty much anywhere but Africa, <laughs> most megafauna 
are gone. They're long, long gone. And in a lot of places, like in North America, the reason for them to be gone is primarily due to climate change, but also human intervention. So humans saw these, you know, giant mammoths. They're like, wow, that's a lot of food. Gonna kill that thing. Gonna eat it all up. Yum, yum. (laughs) And that did happen in Africa. But there was actually this really interesting paper that I was reading. Um, It was in this uh, magazine Science by Faith Rowan and a few other people. Sorry, I didn't write it down. I just put at all. I'm so sorry. Um, And, you know, they were looking at ancient hominin impacts on African mega herbivores is how they described them. Um, Because they were specifically looking at, you know, the megafauna that ate plants. And they found that, at least for Africa, it was mostly changes in climate that led to the megafauna extinctions, which is really interesting. Like I said, a lot of other megafaunas had a huge human impact to their fall. Um, But the megafauna in Africa started disappearing about four and a half million years ago, which was a period in time where there were no, you know, hominid species in Africa. And they found by looking at all sorts of weird science stuff that I didn't really understand because I am not that kind of a science nerd. They like looked <laughs> at the teeth of ancient fossils and like the soil layers and all that fun stuff. And they found that there was less carbon dioxide in the air, which in turn <laughs> meant that there was a change from tree covered landscapes to actually what we see now of modern grass-dominated savannas. So the grasses expanded and killed all the megafaunas. Oh my gosh, Nicole, this is going to be good. Oh, wow. (laughs) Isn't that fun? That's so fun. I love that. (laughs) And that's just for the mega herbivores in Africa, right? Yes, but a lot of times, you know, if you lose all your mega herbivores, then you're also going to lose all of your large carnivores as well, because now they don't have anything to eat. So it kind of all goes in hand in hand. I just thought it was, grasslands are the best, you know, we all know it's true, but the grasslands taking over this, you know, huge continent ended up with a huge decline in ancient megafauna, which included ancient rhinos, elephants, hippos, and some other things. So... I don't that know. is really so fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. yeah, cool. <laughs> and real quick, just just because I just want to get, I want to touch on this before I forget. But you know, why is it that megafauna in Africa have survived for the most part? Why do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Why have megafauna in Africa survived? Um, because it's been harder for outside influences to get into the continent and disrupt things. Yeah. It's going to be one guess. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, You know, I'm, I'm realizing now that I know nothing about the paleontological history of Africa. Yeah. And so a- apart from, you know, the hominid emergence in the mm-hmm. Serengeti region, like that's pretty much all I ever hear discussed in terms of paleontology and archaeology in Africa. So I, I don't even know what these animals are or why some of the animals survived until now. (laughs) Hey, well, I'm so glad you're here to learn some stuffs. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So from my research, and of course I am not an expert on this at all, 
for the most part, I don't know a whole lot about, you know, ancient cultures, ancient peoples, ancient animals. I know some dinosaur facts. I know some dinosaur names. But (laughs) that is pretty much it. But from my research, you know, I've seen that resistance to climate change is a huge one for why the megafauna survived um, that are still in Africa. And I saw one paper that kind of thought that maybe, you know, all of these animals that did survive, they ended up evolving alongside humans and early hominids, which (gasps) led to a natural aversion, which saved them from the fates of their brethren, you know, in the Americas, who just got wiped out by humans as they, you know, moved on. Which I thought was a really interesting hypothesis. That is such a good hypothesis. Ooh, You're just listening to the sound of my brain exploding over and over again. Please continue. (laughs) I'm so glad that I could be here to witness that. (laughs) But yeah, I just, I don't know. I thought that was really, really interesting. And I think that that is, I mean, sure, why not? That makes sense. You know, these animals, you know, know that humans have an ability to kill them. So they're like, hey, gonna like go over here now. (laughs) Right. Oh my god, that's so cool. Please, don't stop. Okay, okay. Well, that's all I had for that. Um. Oh, what? (laughs) Okay. I mean, it's it's one of those questions that we don't really have an answer to right now. Is, you know, why did the megafauna survive in Africa when they didn't survive in other places? And I think that, you know, resistance to climate change and then, you know, evolving alongside humans are two very, very, very good hypotheses. But ultimately, we don't know. And we might never right. know. Right. And that's that's part of science, is not knowing the answer. So that's okay. And that's what makes science fun. So I just kind of picked some of my favorite megafauna, some of the ones that I thought were interesting, as well as some of the ones that are kind of good examples that I think people should know about. And the first one is Dinotherium. Do you know who that is? Isn't it kind of a Tasmanian tiger looking dude? No. Good try, though. No, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Dinotherium was a genus of megafauna, again, big animal, that was the pre- precursor to modern elephants, as well as mammoths uh, that eventually oh. you know, evolved in North America. Okay. So they existed about nine and a half million years ago in Africa, and... Other gen- other species of this genus also existed in Europe as recently as three and a half million years ago. This is one of the ones that climate change probably had a big impact on its downfall, but we don't quite know what ultimately led to their extinction. Um, and these guys were really interesting. They're a little bit larger than modern day elephants. Um, they're about 12 to 13 feet tall at the shoulder versus modern African elephants are about 10, maybe 11 feet tall. So, you know, a couple feet taller, plus a nice big chonky head up there. And they had super, super, super small ears, unlike modern most modern day elephants. And they had really long tusks and a trunk, like modern day elephants. Hmm. What is interesting about their tusks is that they actually curved downwards, and they are the lower jaw incisors, so the teeth right in front, versus modern-day elephants, their tusks come from the upper jaw and curve upwards. Interesting. Okay. 
Yeah, so some weird adaptations that, you know, led to kind of upside-down tusks, or I guess modern elephants have upside-down tusks. (laughs) And people have been so interested by this guy and trying to figure out, you know, why did their tusks curve downwards, whereas modern, you know, elephants curve upwards. And (laughs) one of my favorite hypotheses, which I highly doubt is any kind of true, but these guys were so large that for a while, scientists thought that they lived in the water because there's no way that something so large could be on land. (laughs) And there's a lot of ancient dinosaurs where we also thought of this, but we now know it's not true. And they thought that these, you know, ancient elephants would sit in the water and use their tusks to like prop their heads up out of the water so that they could breathe. Oh, that's hilarious. I know. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) But like, there's no way that they would evolve tusks facing downwards just so they could hold their head up. No. So who knows? I mean, it could be a nice (laughs) benefit perhaps, but. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, so they, they, we think that maybe they use them to kind of root around, dig for food, maybe in mating displays. And, you know, modern day elephants do a lot of those same things. So why not Dinotherium as well? <laughs> for the record, when you say uh, these guys were probably affected by climate change, you're talking about like the climate shift that moved the forested biome toward a more grassland biome in this region? Yes. Okay. Um, that and also just because uh, nine nine and a half million years ago was the end of the uh, last ice age as well. Mm, right. So and the, again, these these guys existed. Dinotherium as a genus existed from nine and a half million years ago to three and a half million years ago. So they had a really long um, span of time where they were slowly declining, and maybe some species died out while other species did fine. So it's a little bit hard to talk about them as a full group and exactly, you know, what led to their extinction. Yeah. We'll get closer to dates that make more sense, I promise. Hey. <laughs> in fact, we're going to jump way, way up in the timeline and we're going to talk about voyeurs. Do you know what those are? They're a genus of animal. No. Okay. Should I? No. I didn't know what they were. So that, and oh, that's okay. why I picked them. <laughs> no one's ever told me that, you know, there were these giant crocodiles that used to live on Madagascar. Oh. These are vo- the Voyer crocodilians. They were a genus of crocodiles um, that grew up to five meters long. That's 16 feet. Um, the modern saltwater crocodile can get close to that uh, length, but not very often. And really, since we're talking about something that died um, about 2,000 years ago, and we don't have that many fossil fossils left of these guys, it's kind of hard to say for sure, you know, maybe the 16-foot-long one, maybe it was only, you know, 15 years old, and it still had a lot of growing left to do. We have no idea. Mm. So I like to believe that they get way bigger, but there's no science to back that up. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> And these guys, like I said, they lived on Madagascar. And Madagascar at this time had a ton of really large, weird animals on it, including elephant birds. And as, you know, all of these giant animals were wiped out, do you want to guess what wiped them out? Elephant birds. <laughs> no, they ate the elephant birds. <laughs> oh, no. Was it the voyeurs? <laughs> the voyeurs. No, ate no, the elephant birds. No, no, no. The voyeurs ate, ate the elephant birds, but it was a very 
it was a good relationship. It was just like any other predator-prey relationship. Ah, homeostasis. Yes, yes. Until humans came in. Ah, it's always humans. I always forget (laughs) about the humans. I know, I know. So their their decline very, very strongly uh, relates to colonists arriving on the island and basically just eradicating all of the giant animals, all of the megafaunas that existed there. No. So again, these guys went extinct about 2,000 years ago. So quite a bit more recent versus, you know, three and a half million years ago with the Dinotherium. There's a single tear just crawling oh. its way down my cheek. <laughs> oh, no. Rip Voyer and elephant birds. I know. Elephant birds are so cool. I love them. My last one. Well, not the last one. I lied. <laughs> the next one that I want to talk about is the Atlas bear. It's in the name. It's a bear. It's dead now. Um, they used to live in the Atlas Mountains, and they would often come down to the grasslands and kind of move along the mountainside. And the Atlas Mountains, if you're not aware, is kind of the northern edge of um, Africa through Morocco and Algeria. And the Atlas bear, once again, likely went extinct due to human contact and and kind of encroachment on their territory, as well as a super huge push on hunting and collecting them for sport. So if you've ever seen, you know, especially like movies and old, you know, pictures and drawings of, you know, gladiators fighting bears, those bears were probably Atlas bears. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, Atlas bears from Africa. Oh my god, I thought we were talking about, like, the same time period, and my brain just had to reshift and readjust its focus to take in the fact that an entirely different kind of bear existed and made its way into our history without us knowing (laughs) about it somehow. Us as in you and me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, gladiators, like like a wild Like in Rome. Yes. The last um, Atlas bear was reported, and it was killed by hunters in 1870. So this is getting closer to modern day times. How big was this bear? Um, I don't know. Let me Google it real quick. Also, tangentially, are modern bears like black bears, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, I guess, in North America, like are the ones I'm thinking of, like are, are bears that size considered megafauna or no? It depends on your definition. So again, you know, archaeologists love them. They're so smart. They're amazing. But they can be kind of particular about what you call a megafauna. But then other people are like, if it's a big animal, it's a megafauna. So, and when you're talking about, you know, the the great megafaunal extinction, usually that is referencing the last ice age. And as climate changed, we had, you know, a ton of big animals go extinct. But there are, like I said, a lot of modern day megafauna, mostly in Africa. Yeah. Um, but yeah. The Atlas bear was about a thousand pounds, nine feet long. Adult grizzly bears are six and a half feet long, 600 pounds. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's an adult male, like a big boy. It's going to be about 600 pounds. Oh, man. So these guys were, you know, significantly bigger than the modern bears that we have now. And, like, it existed during, I don't know, recorded history. So yes. do we know anything about its ecology or is it just, like, gladiator tales that we have? I Like, I think it's mostly gladiator tales, honestly. <sighs> you know, I was trying to find out some more information about them and it's not easy to do. 
No ecology, just like, wow, that's a big bear. <laughs> that's a big bear. I mean, I'm sure if you, like, dove into it. It just seems like such a waste of, like, our human resources that we're having to decipher this now through archaeological and paleontological means when people yeah. could have just written it down for us, right? you know? Come uh-huh. on, people. Some of you could write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of you could write or at least pass down <laughs> oral traditions. Like, come on. Uh-huh. No, yeah, like, the Wikipedia, not that, you know, I only use Wikipedia or anything, but right. the Wikipedia article is, like, two paragraphs. Like, it's it's super small. And even when you go on to, you know, more in-depth websites that have, you know, actual scientific literature cited in their sources, um, <laughs> it's mostly talking about, you know, the Roman Empire and how... Oh, these are the bears that you saw in gladiator rings, which is a really interesting fact, but it's like, okay. <laughs> I want more. <laughs> right, right? Yeah. I think that they Man. were mostly considered um, herbivorous. Okay. But I could be wrong. I mean, that would be kind of true of, like, modern bears, too. Like, they're very herbivorous. I mean, Apart they're from pretty omnivorous. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Wait, did you mean like I, they just were strictly herbivores? Yeah, like. Oh. Yeah, like they. Okay. My 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 brain interpreted they're pretty herbivorous as they're omnivores that tend to eat more vegetable matter than other things <laughs> for some uh-huh. reason. It didn't occur to me that a bear could. Never mind. There are. Never mind. I'm. That was dumb. <laughs> no, you're fine. I think in general, bears eat a lot more plant matter and berries and and you know all sorts of things that people don't realize like they think of a bear and they're like oh it's a flesh eating machine but in general bears actually do eat a lot of other things but the atlas bear could have been different yeah and i th- i think that that's true that you know people think that it wasn't as carnivorous as modern day bears which are admittedly less carnivorous than the average person thinks just to make it nice right. and confusing for you guys yeah Atlas bears. Super cool. 1870. So there's another one. There's one more extinct. Well, that's, I lied. I'm sorry. You keep There's doing one of that. two. <laughs> there's, in this section, there's one more extinct animal that I want to talk about. This one went extinct in 2011. No. Do you know what I'm talking about? The northern, wait, No. It was declared extinct in 2011. The last confirmed sighting was in 2003. Declared extinct in the wild? Extinct. Just straight extinct. (gasps) Yes. Oh, I should definitely know this, but I don't. That's okay. (laughs) It's a western black rhino. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And these guys, periodically, every couple years, there will be another kind of... um, flurry of information about them and people being like oh wow the rhino's extinct but yeah they were declared extinct in 2011 the last confirmed one was seen in 2003 and so the IUCN red list which is kind of the end-all be-all for is it extinct how endangered is it that kind of information you know they will wait five years just in case to kind of like see if maybe another one's found. (laughs) So they proposed it as extinct in 2006. And then again, you know, five years later, they're like, okay, it's definitely gone. And these guys, their decline is very, very strongly correlated to overhunting, 
in Africa. And then once there were, you know, protections in place, poaching became a huge issue for these guys. Yeah. So uh, most of our other rhino species are very, very much critically endangered. And there are other subspecies of black rhino that are still doing okay. Um, A lot of rhinos in Africa are actually collared and, you know, very closely protected because there are so few of them left in the wild. And, you know, the the measures that people go to to try to keep these guys safe are, is actually pretty impressive. And honestly, I'd kind of like an episode just on rhinos, because um, they do have a really interesting conservation story. You know, it's it's hard with an animal that, that is so recognized like the rhino is mm-hmm. to really remember all of these different species designations. And I feel like, you know, with this northern white rhino, subspecies extinction that we've seen you know some people i feel like see those headlines realize the entire species isn't extinct it's just like one little offshoot of it and then they kind of feel like they've been baited and lied to and that it wasn't actually a big deal um yeah and i i feel like that's an interesting point and maybe an interesting discussion to have too about like well these might be subspecies um Mm -hmm. why is that still significant uh, why is that still a loss mm-hmm. that matters? And how can we be better in our communication with people about mm-hmm. what exactly is happening instead of just making people really confused when they go to the zoo and see white rhinos are still there and black rhinos? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you and you can see these guys in zoos pretty often. Um, I want to say, at least in North America, there's maybe like 80 black rhinos that you can find. I'm not sure about white rhino numbers. Um, and most zoos only have a pair of rhinos and maybe their offspring. Since they are so endangered, you know, zoos are trying to get those guys back out into the wild as much as possible. Did you want to clarify on the northern white rhino, their situation? The last I heard, they, they only have two individuals of the same gender remaining. And one of those may have died yes. recently. I just can't recall. So they're they're functionally extinct unless they're able to... I mean, no, they're they're pretty, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they have to yeah, do some yeah. like Jurassic Park type stuff to get them back, you know. At this point, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So there's there's only uh, two females, I believe. And even so, the black rhinos that do exist uh, in the wild now, they the populations are so spread out that it can be really hard for them to one find each other to make babies, or two, you know as these populations get more and more spread out, even if they can find each other within that population, then you start running into, you know, inbreeding and, you know, genetic bottlenecks and all this not great stuff. So there is, I believe, also work trying to spread around genes and making sure that we try to preserve habitat between these populations so that they can intermingle as much as possible. And that's true for, you know, conservation of any species, you really have to take, and we talked about this uh, with the parrots, I think, um, (laughs) you really have to take an ecosystem-wide approach. You have to not just have these little tiny parks where they're safe, and you have to make sure that they have protections, you know, in the whole country or maybe, you know, the whole continent, and that we have these habitat corridors where they can move and move between and make sure that the genetic diversity is there so that the populations are not just existing, but are thriving. I have one more extinct animal that I want to talk about. And this one, 
I kind of want to have a conversation with you. Not that we haven't had a conversation this whole time, but (laughs) I'm curious about your perspective on this. And I have a lot of feelings and I try to not let them show through so that I can hear what you think. Oh, okay. But, so, did you know the Plains Zebra, like the zebra that you see all over the place whenever you see a picture of Africa and it's the savannah and there's a zebra, it's a plain zebra, 100% of the time. They're everywhere. There's so many of them. And these guys naturally have a very wide variety and stripe patterns to the point where some of them might be like mostly black instead of mostly white. Um, and sometimes they even have spots instead of stripes. Mm-hmm. And there was this subspecies of plain zebra that is now extinct and it was called the Waha, which is, it's spelled Q-U-A-G-G-A. And I had to look up how to say this guy. And Waha. The Quaha. The, the, okay. the, the Q is like barely there. Quaha. Quaha. Okay. And technically it's supposed to be the Quaha. Like Quaha. Quaha. You have to have that like growly noise. Quaha. Yeah. But that's hard for me to do. Yeah. Because I'm white. Um, right. <laughs> but it's interesting because their name, the Quaha, is an onomatopoeia for the noise they make. So Quaha, Quaha, you know, that, that, that zebra noise that oh. zebras make. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And that really, that helped me kind of cement how to pronounce it. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that. But the Quaha is now extinct. It went extinct. The last one was in the Amsterdam Zoo and it died in 1883. Mm. Um, and they found that these guys... You know, at first we they thought that this was a distinct species from the plains zebra, but in 1984 um, they actually were able to pull DNA um, from a taxidermied quaha that was being uh, kind of redone, and there's a little bit of flesh on there, and they pulled DNA from that sample of flesh and found that it was actually a subspecies of the plains zebra, Ooh. and not a distinct species as we first thought. And these guys, what is interesting about them is that there's actually a breeding project going on in South Africa. It's called the Quaha Project. Um, You can go to their website, quahaproject.org. Again, it's Q-U-A-G-G-A, and kind of learn more about them. And the Quaha Project is breeding plain zebras and, you know, selecting for fewer and fewer stripes on the rump. So the quaha, when it was alive, it had striping on its neck and kind of on its shoulders and on its sides, but had absolutely no stripes on its rump or on its uh, legs. So it was just kind of a, like a light brownish color and there was no stripes at all. And the quaha project is claiming to bring back the quaha from extinction. So I'm just curious as to your your thoughts on that claim. That is very interesting. <laughs> yeah. This this um sounds I mean, I've already referenced Jurassic Park, but it does feel <laughs> a little bit like that, but it's interesting because it's it seems like they're basically trying to take the same evolutionary steps, but the driver in this point is instead of natural selection, just mm-hmm. human-induced. Yeah, which is how we go from, you know, 
that's how we get get all these different breeds of dogs and how we get all these different breeds of cats. Like selective breeding is very, very powerful. But by them doing this breeding, are they really bringing back an extinct animal? Yeah. You know, how how will we ever really know? And we we do have the D- DNA from an actual quaha. Um, I don't know. I just I just thought this was a really interesting it is. project. It is. And, uh, God, okay, sorry. There's so much going on in my head right now. Let me try and, like, organize it into a few specific things. I got so excited. I had to, like, sit up on my chair and perch so that I could think properly. Um, (laughs) Yes, yes. So here's here's my thought. I don't think that they can recreate the Quaha. I don't think they can say they've brought it back from extinction. I do think that they can come really close. And I do think that, especially with our DNA technologies being so quick and effective now, and having that DNA sample, I don't know if it's like a full genome. Do you know if it's a full genome? I don't think so. Yeah. See, that's that's probably difficult because if they had an entire yeah. genome sequence, they could really analyze and say, how close did we get? Um, mm-hmm. But the, the problem here is that there is more to the evolutionary process than just genetic breeding. It's, it's more than the genes. There's yeah. a lot of... Uh, environmental effects that cause epigenetic changes in these animals that we know are incredibly environmentally influenced Mm -hmm. you know like i think some people have been publishing clickbaity titles lately about this kind of stuff where they'll talk about like you know your genes have memories and it's not the dna and that kind of stuff but there there is some truth to that in the sense that you know our evolutionary past is much much deeper than just our genes and so there's probably features that we cannot detect anymore that we would be impossible for us to detect that we just won't be able to replicate because we don't know that they existed. And we can't repli- replicate the environmental changes these animals went through mm-hmm. that drove their original evolution into this yeah. subspecies. So yeah. I think that they can create quaha that look the same and maybe in some ways they will act the same and make similar vocalizations and stuff, but they probably would never be the actual subspecies. And and we could never, from a scientific or ecological perspective, we could never study what these animals do if they were, say, set loose in an ecosystem and assume that they were behaving in a similar way to the extinct animal. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I agree. And there, if you look up uh, interviews uh, with the people that are running this project, occasionally they will admit that we're only making something that looks like a quaha. But some, you know, on their website, it says... I don't want to. I don't want to quote them incorrectly. Let me just pull it up. Oh, okay. I actually just googled the website and I'm looking at the pictures of these animals. They're they're very uh-huh. cool. I see what you mean about the brown and the lack of uh, stripes and the rump. They're very distinct looking, absolutely. And it's it's interesting to think about you know what drove these the subspecies of plain zebra to develop these stripes or lack thereof and the dark patterning on the rump. You know that really dark brown, whereas a lot of zebras are exactly black and white. And, you know, a lot of these, it wasn't just one or two zebras that looked like this. There were so many of these that we thought they were a different species. Whereas, you know, some of those other examples that I was giving, 
the really, really dark zebras or the zebras that kind of have spots instead of stripes. It's like one or two individuals that look like this. Um, so it might be more of just like kind of a weird genetic mutation more than with the quaha. Obviously, there was something pushing these animals to look like this, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's never something that we could replicate artificially. No. And sometimes the the pressures are actually on a different part, like a, a sort of invisible mm-hmm. part of the animal. And the patterning just happens to go along with it because of the way the genes are affected. Like, I think the most obvious example of this that people can recognize is the red fox breeding projects that have happened where by mm-hmm. selecting for like, quote unquote, friendly domestic traits, a lot of the physical characteristics that we recognize in domesticated canids just like happen to follow suit because they happen to be affected yeah. in similar ways by that breeding. So, I mean, it, it could be that it wasn't even selecting for the stripes, that there was something else there. And like, we just have no way of knowing that because these animals are gone. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess then if you take that logic, if you <laughs> did select for the patterning, maybe you could bring out some of the other traits, you know, it's just, but it's hard to say for sure if you've got the entire picture, if you don't have the entire picture that you're starting from. Yeah. I do think... Even with like any concerns about like the legitimacy and overinflating the 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 work that's being done, I think it's worth doing the work. Like I think I think it's worth doing this experiment and seeing like, hey, are there some traits that come back? And you know, we can sure make some speculations about that kind of thing, and we can sure look at their genetics and see like, oh, hey, when we selected for these stripes, these are the other genes that got pulled along with it, and here's what we can you know, compare that to and, and, and make some speculations on their evolution. But, it, you know, we can never pretend like it's an answer, like a, a certain answer. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of my biggest gripe with this project is it's really interesting. And I think especially if they take it like you're saying, and they really like look at the changes in the genome and, you know, what selecting for a different striping pattern did, if they take it that far, then absolutely power to them. But I don't know that they will. And I hope that they do. Um, But right now, it kind of just seems like, I don't want to make enemies, but (laughs) it kind of just seems like they kind of wanted to do it, so they did it. And it's not that I think that that's necessarily wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm worried that, oh, no, they're playing God or anything like that. Or, you know, it's just that perhaps all the money and the time maybe this project is kind of detracting attention away from more important conservation work of animals that are already here, like our rhinos. Mm. And, you know, there's even subspecies of giraffe that are endangered. But yeah, it's interesting. And they have actually released um, some of the quaha that they've bred. Oh, um, yeah. Sorry, that seems dangerous. <laughs> yeah, that was my they first. They can just breed. <laughs> yeah, they, they would just breed back into the zebra populations, the regular plain zebra, right? Uh, or am I crazy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I was very scared when I saw that, but it turns out um, that they are releasing them onto game reserves and onto, oh, okay. you know, fenced areas. <laughs> yeah. So they're wild, but separate, which is good. Um, yeah. I was very concerned that they were just like, let's, you know, take this animal that's been in captivity and selectively bred for, you know, four or five generations and just throw it out there. One, they would ruin all their hard work. And two, (laughs) I mean, you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to do that. It would mess with the genetics of the populations that were already there. We have enough horror stories of mistakes like that, exactly like that we've already made in the past across the world. We don't need to do it again. (laughs) We should have learned by now. Uh, Mm. Yeah. This is very interesting. 
And you're right. I, I do want to point out, I think that at least for me personally, I want to be careful mm-hmm. implementing too many like what about isms w- with regards yeah. to like what we choose to spend our resources on and that sure. kind of thing. Well, because, you know, like there's different pools of resources and people have different varying abilities to contribute to conservation and stuff. But I, that's not to negate anything that you said, because I still think it's fair to be like, hey, should we continue pouring resources into this one endangered species, for example, when there are so many yeah. others that we could actually save without as much human intervention? And I think those are good conversations to have. And and I think that that's totally fair. Just acknowledging that there's sometimes a lot of more complex things that go into those decisions. And that's understandable. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I'm not trying to defend this project because I know nothing about it, but I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Please, um, Quaha Project, don't get mad at me. I'm just <laughs> voicing opinions. I don't have any control over any money, so don't worry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just have opinions, and I like shouting them into the world, so. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, fascinating (laughs) yeah yeah i just thought it was a really interesting project and i kind of went on a rabbit hole with them and i found some cool videos that i'll definitely post on our blog post for this episode so check them out if you're interested and uh if you find well never mind i was gonna say if you find resources on protecting any of these species having literally just forgotten everything is extinct so it doesn't matter (laughs) oh no okay okay so okay that was really loud i blew out my mic To get away from the doom and gloom, there is a lot of really, really cool, amazing conservation efforts that are going on in Africa, especially around, you know, those large charismatic megafauna like elephants. And some of the most successful ones usually involve bringing income to those local communities that are there already. Things like ecotourism is obviously very huge in Africa. And there are many organizations that will funnel that money directly to the people that need it. So if you are going on a vacation to Africa, make sure that you, you know, research your travel agency, research your tour guide that's giving you their time and you're giving them your money. Because sometimes those organizations are not so great, and sometimes they are really awesome. So take that time to make sure that your money is going towards a reputable organization. And that's true no matter where you're traveling. One of my absolute favorite stories of really cool conservation work is the story of the elephants and the honeybees. Elephants are big. They're destructive. They will absolutely destroy a farmer's crop field. However, elephants also are terrified of honeybees. (laughs) So they found that if you kind of circle your crop field with several honeybee hives, the elephants will be too scared to go past the hives to then eat or trample your crops. So now you have a natural deterrent rather than, you know, shooting the animal or scaring it away or, you know, building a fence that then those animals will be blocking their migration routes and all that fun stuff. You just have a row of honeybee hives and that farmer now has crops that are safe and he also has a second source of income in the honey that those honeybees are making. So love it. And the honeybees are helping pollinate their crops as well. So... Win, 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 all the way around. Something that complicates the conservation of megafauna in particular is this is a really big animal. They need a lot of food. They need a lot of room to roam to find that food. 
And they're slow to mature, so it takes a long time for little giant to turn into big giant that can then have offspring. But there's a lot of advantages to being giant-sized as well, and that's why especially we used to have a lot of megafauna. For herbivores, a giant body means a giant digestive tract to help break down plants, because plants are really hard to break down. If you are giant, you have very few predators. Um, And then if you're a giant carnivore, that means that you can eat a lot of smaller things. So there's advantages to being a megafauna and there's also disadvantages. And their conservation story is constantly evolving. But there is hope. There's a lot of organizations out there that are doing a lot of really cool work with these guys. Excellent. Well, thank you, Nicole, for teaching me so much. <laughs> um, thank you to our listeners for listening to our podcast. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend. And consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. It really helps us a lot and it makes us smile. So two two great things <laughs> right there. Yes. Give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter or leave us a voice message or text us. Uh, all the links are in the thing that has our description right there next to your podcast app. We'll even <laughs> give you a shout out for that love. And I guess that's it. So uh, we're uh, signing off and uh, catch you on the, we'll catch you on the flip side. We'll, we'll catch you on the flip side. And remember, if you're feeling depressed about the state oh, of conservation... God. Then go do something positive for conservation. Yeah. Excited to see you guys next week. <laughs>